Welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast, the appearance psychology podcast brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world-leading research centre based at the University of the West of England in Bristol, investigating everything related to the psychology of how we look. I'm Maya. And I'm Bruna. And today we've got a very familiar face on the podcast. Uh, One of our co-hosts, Bruna, is going to be talking to us about her um, research project, which was part of her professional doctorate in health psychology. So that's very exciting. Thanks, Maya. Yeah, it's really, really good to be here on the other side of things and really excited to talk to you about my project. Um, as you said, it was part of my professional doctorate in health psychology, which I've now finished having just completed my Viva a few weeks back. Yeah, <laughs> it's very exciting. Do you, should we maybe give um, the listeners a little bit of a background about what a Viva is and like what the process for finishing a doctorate is? Because it all feels maybe a little bit mysterious yeah. if you're not kind of in academia yeah no definitely and even when you're in it to be fair but to be um, fair, yeah so yeah either otherwise known as a thesis defense is exactly that so it's the final exam I suppose in doctoral training where you'll have kind of several experts in the field that you've been conducting research in come and examine you on your work um, your job is to convince them that it's good enough for a doctoral piece of work and if they agree with you you pass um that's essentially what a viva is thanks bruna yeah so it sounds a little bit scary and i think it kind of is um mm-hmm. but also it can be quite an, uh, a nice opportunity to just discuss your work all the all the time that you put into it over um quite a long period of time and uh, at the end of the day you're the person who knows it best so it's just nice to be able to talk about it to people who have to listen um which is cool and Bruna Uh, did very did a very good job in her viva um so Bruna got no corrections on her thesis which is very unusual because normally you might have to do some changes after your viva so that's definitely something to celebrate um and I'm really looking forward to hearing more about the work Oh, thank you, Maya. Well, you know, I was inspired by you um, having completed your own uh, kind of recently, too. So, yeah, thank you. And yeah, I'm excited to share it with everybody today. Okay, great. So should we get into it? So, um, Bruna, could you start by giving us a bit of a background about what your research was about? Sure. So I suppose before we get into the research, it might be helpful to just do a very quick summary as to kind of how I got to do Mm. this project and why it interested me. Um, So as we said, um, I was on the health psychology doctorate training um, and I have to say thank you to the funders who were able to fund my training and that's the VTCT Foundation um, alongside my research job at CAR. Um, And so with kind of both my training and my job in research and specifically visible difference appearance health psychology research, one of the big problems and something that we're always talking about is the fact that our research samples are largely made up of white Western participants and This is a problem for various reasons. When we talk about appearance, we know that what we consider beautiful is really dependent on social standards and that varies depending on place, culture and other contextual information. So, you know, how do variations in these areas then impact the way that beauty is perceived and then also the way in which people living with visible differences experience their condition and their appearance? Um, I suppose we can also bring in the concept of intersectionality. Mm. So having a visible difference and potentially identifying as having a disability as well, depending on kind of the condition that the individual has. Um, We can kind of suggest that that introduces an element of marginalization in society, kind of looking visibly different, potentially having uh, physical kind of access barriers. Um, 
In addition, when we think about other marginalized social identities like ethnicity and religion, um, when that's kind of brought into the mix, how does that potentially further complicate um, experiences? And as I say, this is something that we refer to as intersectionality. In health psychology, luckily, that's something that the field is kind of moving towards and beginning to talk about. And we are really acknowledging how kind of multiple aspects of identity has a huge impact on health um, and how health psychologists need to be considering this in their research and practice. Going back to the visible difference um, research, unfortunately, the knowledge base is very limited and most of what we know stems from participants who are from the UK, the US and Australia largely um, and so that leaves us to ask well what does that mean for other people right and um, so that's just kind of a background as to kind of the problem that I was working within and kind of having conversations with colleagues about and that I was really motivated to hopefully do something to improve. Oh, that's a really great um, backdrop to start us off with, Bruna. And you kind of mentioned, um, obviously, intersectionality there, which I know we've discussed in other podcast episodes before, and kind of lack of representation and why that's an issue. So I guess the, the next question for me is, why do you think there is a lack of representation in research to begin with? Sure. So that's a huge question and definitely not one that I'll be able to fully answer <laughs> in this episode. Um, but there are a few things that we can kind of think about or we should think about definitely in, in terms of improving our practice. First of all is methodological limitations. So which outcome measures are we suggesting in research? Are they available in kind of languages other than English? Are they culturally sensitive? Are they asking people about elements of their experiences, of their appearance that kind of don't just don't make sense? And broader recruitment challenges as well. So um kind of potential challenges in accessing different kind of communities and building meaningful collaborative and trusting relationships. Um, kind of those two combined, I think, are big reasons as to why research samples have been limited, as well as uh, largely lack of commitment from researchers to kind of bridge that gap, if we can be honest. Um, however, there is some small amount of kind of more diverse visible difference research available that's UK based too. Um, and what the findings from this research tells us is that there could be some kind of additional considerations for us to think about when it comes to people's experiences and when it comes to the support that people need, um, kind of issues stemming around stigma and lack of kind of potential uh, social acceptance around different conditions, um, largely stemming from kind of beliefs about what causes conditions and what it means to have various conditions. Um, by extension, then those affected, we see um, evidence of reduced social opportunities and then also increased kind of treatment dissatisfaction as well as other negative outcomes such as um, negative self-image. Um, so the limited amount of research that does exist does suggest that there seems to be a problem, an additional problem, um, but because research is so limited that kind of stops there and that never quite gets translated to kind of improving practice and making this better for people affected. Great. Thank you, Bruna. And, you know, that's really interesting that that we can reflect on the different um, issues that might come up for individuals from different kind of ethnic backgrounds and from different communities that might not be represented in the research at the moment. And we can't generalise from, as you were saying, the kind of light, largely kind of white samples from the U UK, US and, and Australia. So um, you worked with a specific group for your doctoral research. So can you tell me a bit about that community and why you chose kind of specifically to work with that group on this work? Yeah, sure. So the way in which we talk about kind of culture and ethnicity is ever changing. And I think it's really important that we as researchers, as health psychologists, as psychologists are up to date with best practice. 
there's a preference to move away from the idea that minority groups or underrepresented communities are one. Um, and we often see that with the use of terms such as BAME and BME, which stand for Black, Asian, Minority, Ethnic Individuals. Um, and that's because actually communities might have as many differences between them as they do with kind of white Western majority groups in the UK. Um, so actually it's reductionist and unhelpful mm. to be saying, well, everybody else who isn't white Western English is Bay or BME, right? So I definitely knew that in wanting to um, address this gap and this problem in the literature, I also didn't want to create further harm mm. um, in doing that. So I began to have kind of various conversations and um, interacting with various community groups in Bristol one group that kind of I made really meaningful connections with at the very beginning of my work was the Somali community in Bristol, um, which is kind of really largely represented in Bristol. Somalis do constitute one of the largest diasporas in the world and in the UK as well. Um, the UK has one of the most established Somali migrant communities. Um, and we see that really strongly here in Bristol where we're based. Um, Looking at kind of the broader health literature as well, we see that Somalis in the UK tend to experience and report some of the worst outcomes um, related to health. And that includes health literacy, but other broader socioeconomic um, kind of factors such as unemployment, poverty, economic inactivity. So, so kind of taking this um, evidence and my conversations with the community together, I really felt that there was a real opportunity here to do something meaningful and positive with the community. Um, looking at kind of the experience of Somali people specifically, drawing back on our um, discussion of intersectionality, we might theorise that Somalis are at particular risk of discrimination and disadvantage. That's because they're not only kind of migrant and of different migrant histories as well need to be addressed and acknowledged, but they're also Muslim and black. Um, so kind of drawing on all those different potential uh, sources of discrimination and thinking about how that ultimately, as I said, influences experiences and outcomes in health. So ultimately, the project um, became about kind of looking at the experiences of Somali people who have uh, visible differences specifically kind of visible on the face, um, because we were particularly keen to kind of look at that element of looking visibly different to others, as well as having poten potential kind of health needs and additional considerations there. That's really helpful, Bruno. Thank you for giving us that, the, the background on why you came to be working with the Somali community in Bristol. And I, I really appreciate your kind of very thoughtful approach to um, identifying this community and also your consideration of not wanting to kind of group people together um, under terms like BAME or BME. I think that's really, really important to recognise that, you know, all of those different identities have different needs. Um, so that's really um, great. And you were talking about the kind of connections that you Made within the community there um you're not a member of the Somali community so I was wondering how that kind of affected your experience of doing the research and can you tell us a little bit about your kind of position as the researcher in that relationship and, and what that was like yeah great question Maya and yeah I think you know most researchers hopefully would agree that in research it's really important to acknowledge our position um kind of how we're approaching our research I'm also somebody who doesn't have a very visible visible difference and that's something that I've um always been mindful of as I kind of work in this area um in this project specifically there was also that kind of element of me not belonging to to this group this kind of cultural group that I was wanting to work with um, and so I thought about that 
from very early on had um, really open, honest discussions about that with my community um, collaborators. And it felt very important to move away from this very problematic and colonial kind of approach that research and psychology has had in the past, which is when kind of Western researchers kind of work with various communities and we see them kind of doing research to or on various groups right so it felt very very important for me that especially given that I wasn't a member of this kind of community that I was working with that the project was guided and shaped by what the community um, needed Um, and that wasn't easy to do and it took a lot of time to kind of meaningfully develop relationships and build those kind of community links but once I did what I found is that they just strengthened this project and my community collaborators were instrumental in kind of really significant decisions that we made and the directions that the project ended up ultimately taking it 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 was we conducted this work through COVID as well so Mm. um a bunch happened and we had to kind of make a several adjustments which without that kind of community insight I wouldn't have been able to um respond to appropriately so yeah so the fact that I'm not Somali myself was definitely a really important consideration for this work and we did our best to get around that by working really closely with the community and kind of taking that approach that I'm bringing the research skill and the access to be able to do this project but um, my community collaborators are bringing their lived experience um, which is just as valuable. Yeah great and I think this is a really good example of good practice in research of you know working very closely with community members and kind of understanding where they're coming from in terms of their lived experience and um, cultural um, experience and, and awareness and also their links within the community and, and something that's just super important to for us as research to, researchers when we are outsiders to acknowledge um, and kind of like you say us being able to bring the kind of research experience but acknowledging that the the equal contribution of kind of people with lived experiences and those kind of community community collaborators that you work so closely with is so valuable um so thanks yeah. for kind of talking us through that so can you tell us um what you did to kind of ask, answer your research questions about the experiences of living with a visible difference um for individuals in the somali community yeah so um very early on we decided that a qualitative approach was most suitable and that's because as i said earlier there's likely um, an issue with existing outcome measures and lots of work to be done before we can kind of look to do those larger quantitative uh studies and it's also an underexplored topic no kind of other research exists with the Somali community so qualitative was just the most fitting there Um, we went ahead and proceeded with semi-structured interviews which as I said this did end up happening through COVID so they did have to be remote Um, and we also um, ensured the provision of interpreters of both genders so that uh, those who might have English as a second language or might not be kind of entirely comfortable with English could have the option to have interviews carried out in Somali Um, and that's a strategy that research finds is quite effective for increasing engagement into research as well. We had to be quite creative in how we recruited so we couldn't just kind of recruit through the the typical channels that we do in research. Um, There was a lot of kind of going to various community spaces including online spaces such as Reddit 
but also kind of working with various community groups, local organizations, um, and personal referrals too were really effective. Um, we also did some media campaigning to get this project out there so people kind of knew it was happening and could connect with us if that was something that interested them. So we did a BBC Radio Bristol uh, breakfast show interview, which was quite an experience. And then we um, also had a BBC news article that came out. Um, and I have to say that that was in collaboration with Nora Abbey, who um, is a researcher herself. Um, Nora is based here in Bristol and her work focuses on kind of experiences of autism within the Somali community. And when we came together for this article, we actually found that there were a bunch of kind of crossovers in our work and it's, it's kind of perceptions of health and experiences of health and health outcomes. So I do just want to say that and we'll be linking uh, some links to Nora's work in the show notes. So do check that out. Um, once our kind of campaigning and recruitment was done and we were able to um, carry out the interviews, I did interview eight individuals with uh, eight, in eight Somali individuals with visible facial differences. Um, a largely young group, so the mean age was 24, um, but the representation of visible differences within the group was varied. So we had congenital conditions, skin conditions, as well as acquired facial scarring. Um, all participants had been born in Somalia, but moved to the UK when they were young. Um, and we analysed that data using reflexive thematic analysis. Great. And I think we have a uh, December dictionary episode on thematic analysis. So if anyone wants to learn more about that, they can go there. Um, but yes, we can definitely link um, some of Nora's work in the show notes and also maybe link that BBC news article that you were talking about, because I think that'd be interesting for people to see as part of the mm -hmm. process of kind of recruitment, especially, mm -hmm. as you said, you had to go about it in slightly um, broader ways than we might usually do, um, especially with kind of challenges of COVID and everything, which you've mentioned a couple of times. Mm -hmm. um, so so yeah, so that's great. That's great to kind of hear how you went about collecting the data and recruiting people. So can you tell us now what you found in that data? Yes, definitely can. I'm going to try and keep this short and sweet because <laughs> I could I could talk for an hour. It's hard, isn't it, when it's your own work? It's just yeah. there's so much to talk about often. Yes, yes. Um, so in sum, we identified three themes from the data. Theme one was named stigmatized differences. And what this theme looked at is kind of participants accounts of the Somali community's potential beliefs towards kind of causes of visible difference. Um, and then what that means for the individual impacted by a visible difference. So we heard accounts of ideas that visible differences and appearance altering conditions might be caused by sin or a curse or punishment from a higher being. Um, or that visible differences might be just a general indication of poor moral character. So it might indicate that you're a thief or you're aggressive by nature, especially certain types of differences such as acquired scarring. Um, and then looking at the consequences then of this stigma for individuals, for Somali individuals affected by visible differences, we identified both social and personal consequences. Um, and those kind of personal consequences were reduced self-esteem, elevated stress, reduced self-confidence and just an overall experience of appearance related distress. Um, and then the social experiences were kind of outright examples of discrimination, but also those more kind of everyday challenges with romantic partners, friends and even family members. Um, and in, within this theme too, what participants really strongly advocated for is the need for greater community awareness and understanding on various health conditions, including visible differences, uh, with the view that 
increasing awareness is the quickest way to kind of reduce stigma. Moving on to theme two, um, theme two was titled Being Other. And this theme is kind of looking at the experience of living in a culture that's not your own and that process of kind of acculturation and combining different um, ideals and beliefs um, and also some tension between kind of more traditional and Western values. Um, specifically, he'll be focused on that in relation to gender and healthcare. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about healthcare as we're kind of focusing on on the health aspect here. Um, what we saw within this theme is participants saying that, you know, they had really quite ne negative and difficult healthcare experiences. One participant um, had disclosed that the treatment that they were prescribed had actually had a bleaching effect on their skin. Um, so kind of potentially looking at inappropriate treatment provision for people of various skin tones. Um, interestingly, though, all participants kind of reported really positive accounts of healthcare professionals themselves, even though their accounts of healthcare more broadly and potential intention to engage in healthcare down the line was kind of negative and there was definitely that disconnection. Um, and so, so kind of we can theorise within, within that about potential kind of cultural ideals and uh, norms around what is right to challenge and kind of hierarchies and what does it mean to be a patient and healthcare professional. Um, and so I think that was really interesting. We were able to draw a lot of practical uh, conclusions from that. Theme three, the final theme is thinking about coping mechanisms. So it's thinking about how participants talked about these challenges and dealing with these challenges in their everyday lives. Generally and largely, um, participants were keeping issues confined to, the, to themselves. And if looking for others, they were kind of looking to their immediate family and really, really close friends. Generally, attitudes to external supports were negative and there was a, a, a dismissal of the need or benefit for this type of support. Um, although importantly, it's really important to say that all participants recognised and stressed the benefit of peer support. So of being able to kind of seek advice and support for people who have the same experiences as them. And when we say that, we mean other Somalis impacted by visible differences, as well as the importance that the community is involved in any support related efforts. So any charity support, any healthcare kind of specific support should really have that element of community involvement that came out really strongly in the data. Thank you, Bruna. There's there's so much there to kind of reflect on, especially around kind of different cultural beliefs and um, the kind of key role of community in in um, people's experiences and also support going forward. What do you think the take home messages might be from this research? What does that might mean for the community? And are there any kind of implications in terms of practice and support going forward? Yeah, I would hope so. And um, that's what I tried to argue in my Viva very strongly. Um, yeah, I have a few and I'll share with you today. So hopefully some that our listeners might find most interesting. So the findings were really exciting to us and exciting to um, everybody involved in the project because no kind of such research exists. Um, so this is a group kind of Somali people with visible differences that have never been represented in the literature. So it was a really significant step. And what the findings do then is they offer really practical suggestions for how do we kind of make improvements going forward. And when we talk about improvements, they're very um, real. So they're about, you know, how do we 
have more Somali people accessing support services? How do we make sure that the support that healthcare professionals, psychologists are offering to Somali people is more culturally appropriate and is therefore more likely to be accepted, right? Um, I've split recommendations into kind of interventions more broadly, and we can think about that as also charities as well who do a lot of work um, with people with visible differences. Healthcare more broadly, so kind of what GPs and nurses can be doing when working with Somali patients and then researchers. So what do us as researchers, what do we need to be doing going forward to make sure that our research is more inclusive for all communities, right, including the Somali community? So potentially loads of uh, different recommendations coming out of there. So maybe um, we start with interventions first. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, thanks, Maya. Um, yeah, so again, despite participants reporting a lack of need for any type of support, particularly psychosocial support, and even reporting quite strong negative perceptions of support, um, other accounts suggest that participants and kind of Somali people with visible differences might benefit from support. So it's really looking at um, how support can be made to be more appropriate. We can think about psychosocial interventions in two ways. We can think about interventions for individuals, and that's about reducing negative outcomes, such as some of those cited by participants in this study. So body image dis disturbance, social anxiety, um, social isolation and avoidance, you know, just all of those factors related to poor adjustment. We can look at interventions to improve that. We can also look at interventions to improve potential um, limited understanding within the community or just overall increased knowledge and access to support. And there's various important considerations to developing this type of support, some of which were cited in this research. So the negative perception of support and support seeking and what that means for somebody to go and seek support. I think that's something that really needs to be acknowledged and incorporated into any support related efforts. That reliance and preference for individual coping. Um, and again, how do we kind of utilise that and work with that for the benefit of everybody? Um, the really important supportive role that the family plays um, in kind of Somali people's experiences and looking at how we can again utilize that and work alongside that and that really strong preference for that peer support and community-led support efforts these are all I think really really important things that we can we can draw on when working on this um also too drawing on positive elements so some of visible difference research in more broadly is moving towards looking at the kind of positive factors we know that not any not everybody struggles to adjust and we know that um, outcomes aren't negative for everybody. So looking to at those positive um, aspects of coping and also how we can foster them in intervention. So within this study specifically, participants cited fit, their faith, really strong sense of pos positivity and optimism um, to their kind of life problems and resilience, kind of stoicism, all of those things. Well, how can we as psychologists kind of learn from that and draw on that in intervention and kind of work with uh, protective factors that are already quite heightened within this sample and ultimately I, I would argue that the evidence base that we're working from isn't actually evidenced especially when we look to broader groups such as the Somali community um, and it's very likely that interventions will need to be at least adapted if not specifically developed for these groups so I do hope that some of those conclusions can be helpful in those efforts. 
Yeah, definitely. And um, obviously, it's really important to consider how we we do adapt things for different communities, as you've mentioned, kind of as you've as you've gone through. Um, so I'm just thinking about one of the other categories that you mentioned in terms of recommendations and I guess linked to support and support seeking. Could you tell us about some of the implications for healthcare provision as well? Yeah, definitely. So I think uh, kind of, yeah, for healthcare professionals, what can healthcare professionals do to improve their work with Somali patients? Um, with visible facial differences. Going back to the uh, preference for coping individually and that really important ties to the family, we conjure on that as health professionals. How do we include family into treatment plans? How do we make that a safe space for that to be able to happen? Um, faith as well, as I as I said earlier, was a really important thing for, for participants in this study. Um, so how do we consider that in practice? You know, are we prescribing treatment um, or are we recommending action during religious festivities? You know, that isn't appropriate. Um, is all treatment that is being prescribed appropriate for all religions and all beliefs? Um, really thinking about faith and the impact of that. Going back earlier to what we talked about, potentially kind of stigmatised attitudes within the community. Um, we might refer to those as fatalistic attitudes. So a belief that health conditions are caused by higher being or a kind of a, a, a higher cause um, so as health professionals how do we kind of work with that and how do we make sure that we tailor our approach and our advice according to that um, health professionals need to be mindful of possible distrust in communities for kind of health professionals and health systems and that's really valid um, and that stems from a really long and persistent history of healthcare inequalities and health and imbalance in healthcare access and resource so um, that's real and that's something that healthcare professionals need to be mindful of when working with various marginalized patient groups um, and then to limit uh, need to be mindful health professionals need to be mindful of possible um, limited health literacy and how that might influence health behaviors um, as well as broader issues such as language barriers you know are we okay are we providing interpreters at the very least I hope we are but are those interpreters appropriate in you know the gender of the interpreter for example so thinking about those issues um, really meaningfully and then importantly too I think as we're talking about this I, I really want to stress that we should always avoid that minority deficit approach so assuming an issue and uh, and assuming that we need to come and fix it too and again that colonial mindset that anything that doesn't fit with the approach of the west is different and needs to be changed it's not that at all i think it's about focusing on and paying attention to all of these different factors that when working with white western patient groups we don't have to think about um considering these factors as mediators to health and well-being and understanding that as health professionals it's our responsibility to incorporate them into our practice if we if we truly want to have a positive impact with our practice um so thinking about the trust issue avoiding that minority deficit model i'm not saying that the issue is oh somali communities aren't trusting of health professionals health professionals need to work really hard to build that trust um, and that's really important language you know we're not placing blame on migrant communities for not you know mastering english we're saying health professionals need to think about how they communicate clearly with patients so that even those with english as a second language can understand the information and advice that's being given um we might argue that cultural competence training is needed for health professionals that does exist uh, potentially more and that can just offer a lot of really practical uh, advice. So 
within the study, what came out really strongly um, and also in other research with um, Somali patient groups is that preference for oral in-person communication and made particularly difficult given that this was a project carried out during COVID remotely. Um, but anyway, outside of COVID, in practice, you know, how do we how do we make sure we are understanding that and are accounting for that? You know, we're making time to to have those in-person uh, kind of conversations, especially the more important ones. And then finally, for healthcare professionals, a really important thing to think about in practice is sociopolitical considerations and the various sociopolitical factors that, again, influence health and well-being. And these are kind of the more structural uh, barriers um, and inequalities, such as economic barriers, educational barriers, um, as well as those broader experiences of discrimination and racism in various systems. So we need to be thinking about those um always when working with various groups my my head feels very full after <laughs> like um listening to you talk through that and it's it's really helpful and i think the thing that um i keep coming back to is that this whole conversation is um a, like a key theme to this whole conversation about your work is uh, a real importance of moving away like you say from that deficit um mm -hmm. approach and kind of really reframing how we think about um lived experience of health conditions lived experience of accessing support and also how we're delivering support and and going out to communities in terms of, uh, of being researchers as well and just reframing um how we how we see these different perspectives i think is really important so i guess with that in mind would you mind coming to your last category of kind of recommendations of what we can learn from this as researchers? What can we learn from your from your work about how we move forward in terms of the way that we approach kind of visible difference research generally? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so I'll I'll give an example actually. So I did say earlier that Reddit was a useful um, space for recruitment, and we did manage to kind of reach a lot of community spaces through Reddit. Our engagement in various Reddit forums did uh, throw up some quite interesting discussions and highlighted a lot of um, animosity and uh, anxiety around research. And that was really interesting. Uh, you know, lack of trust, you know, what's this research actually about? What are you actually going to do with the data? Perceptions that the researchers' intentions aren't positive and mm. that they're not actually trying to help the community and that they'll sell the data and that, you know, all of this stuff was coming out equally. You know, you had people say, um, Somali people are underrepresented in research, that's a problem, um, and this is why we need to take part in research more. Um, but again, those discussions kind of happening in real time was really, really helpful um, to look at. And again, moving away from the deficit approach and thinking about, okay, well, how do we as researchers bridge these gaps? How do we create that trust? How do we build those meaningful relationships? I think similarly to what I said earlier for healthcare professionals, researchers need to apply cultural competence in their practice. You know, are we recruiting during religious celebrations? You know, we wouldn't during Christmas, right? We wouldn't launch a study um, during that week, right? So just making sure that we're thinking about that, making sure that we're thinking about those very real barriers to research participation and thinking about how we can minimize them. So, you know, are we compensating participants for their time? Are we providing transport, childcare even? And this is these are conversations that for researchers need to start very early on. So they need to be budgeted into grant mm, applications, right? This exactly, takes time. Yeah. Mm. Takes time, takes money. It's not easy, but it's very, very important to do. I think another really important thing to do is to carry out more research with various communities, exploring their perceived barriers to research so that we can again 
be led by communities on what we need to do to reduce barriers. So as I said, that Reddit discussion in this project was really interesting because it threw up all of these barriers, some of which I hadn't even thought about. Yeah. Um, what it allowed me to do, though, is to think about them and speak about them to participants or interested participants who, you know, might have an initial call to discuss the project. Um, and that was really um really beneficial. Similarly, we can study motivations for being involved in research and the limited amount of research that does exist in this area, um, not specifically with Somali individuals, but with various underrepresented groups in research, suggests that those individuals are motivated to take part in research when they see um, an altruistic purpose, you know, that they're going to be helping others by doing that, when they find personal interest in the project, when they see opportunities for enjoyment, when they're curious, um, and also when there's a potential therapeutic benefit of sharing experiences. So again, how do we focus on what the motivations are and how do we potentially increase them in our recruitment efforts so we can meaningfully reach people? And then I think the biggest takeaway from this project specifically is that what we found to be effective in our recruitment strategy were all of those strategies that uh, kind of utilized and drew on pre-established relationships. So whether that was through individuals who referred me or Reddit spaces that were established and kind of people had connections within or community organizations and charities, those were the um, spaces where recruitment was really effective. So I think, again, that just points to the importance of relationship building and community and trust. And I think researchers can learn from that. Um, and again, just make sure that they're giving themselves enough time and funding to do that properly. Thanks, Bruno. So you've got so a whole bunch of um, different recommendations there that have come out of your really important findings. Um, lots of things that we can think about as researchers, as you said, it's something that we really need to integrate into our research practice from the very beginning because it needs to go into grant development and budgeting and all those things. But that's something that's very important for us to do. Um, so I was wondering, you've kind of mentioned as you've gone along a few things that were maybe challenging or difficult, like COVID, for example, mm -hmm. which I'm sure was challenging for all of us. But um, mm -hmm. when we when we write up research, we always kind of think about, OK, what are some of the limitations? What are some of the things that we can't tell from this research? Could you maybe talk us through some of those um, thoughts on your own research? Yeah, yeah, good, great question, Maya. So, um, yeah, just expanding on that COVID element. So, yeah, this project did happen during COVID. What that meant is that we had to adapt our plan and do everything remotely. Um, and then thinking about what that means then in terms of limitations for the project. Well, what that means, I think, is that this had implications for the accessibility and inclusivity of the project. Accessibility in that actually by switching to the remote um, approach, what does that mean for people who don't have access to technology um, or, you know, don't have the confidence to engage with the platforms needed, such as Teams, Zoom? Um, so I think that did limit accessibility to research, which was a real shame because that was a core kind of priority for this work. And then by extension, then inclusivity. So although it's a, a small exploratory sample and um, I'm not arguing that it's kind of representative or should be, uh, you know, is intended to be inclusive of all Somali individuals, um, we have a young sample. So it's not inclusive of potentially the unique experiences of older individuals who um, some research suggests might be at greater risk of 
negative health outcomes, especially if they have a more complicated migration history and they arrived in the UK as refugees, for example, Mm -hmm. Um, higher instances of limited English proficiency among older individuals in the Somali community as well. Um, We weren't able to explore that because we have a exclusively young sample, despite our best efforts to recruit. Um, And I do think then it was to do with largely to do with that remote element of the research that meant that we were not able to reach broader community members. And then two, I think another limitation that we've spoke about briefly, but needs to be acknowledged is just my position. So again, me not being Somali, although um, kind of made lots of efforts to collaborate with community members and make sure that their cultural perspectives were were included in the design of this research. Um, but I think, yeah, we, that still needs to be thought about in relation to limitations of this work. So were participants more or less likely to share with me, given that I was an outsider, you know, um, not only my kind of position as an outsider to the Somali community, but my age, you know, being mm-hmm. quite young, uh, my gender, my role. So mm-hmm. participants understood me to be a trainee health psychologist. And we spoke mm-hmm. earlier about potential cultural understandings and and expectations around how you deal with health professionals and what's appropriate challenge or not. Um, so how does how did that influence the study, you know, and how participants spoke to me? Um, uh, and that's something that I kind of wrote into um, the thesis as I'm interpreting the findings, because as I said, it's really important that researchers, especially when working with communities to which they don't belong, really situate their work and make that all those positions really clear. Yeah, thank you for those uh, kind of really thoughtful and insightful reflections on your work and how kind of social cultural environments like COVID, but also how um, kind of personally your positionality might have affected the work. I think it's it's really important that we do this as researchers. Um, but I think, you know, regardless of those things, as we've said, there's been kind of a real lack of research um, invisible difference with these communities. So I think the work that you've carried out here will make a huge contribution, regardless of those kind of limitations that you've just spoken about. So um, kind of off the back of... Oh, no problem. Um, so off the back of that and off the back of the recommendations that you um, have spoken to us about, could you say maybe a little bit about what's next? Yes. Keeping me busy. Keeping me busy. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, yeah. So if anybody's keen, I wouldn't recommend it. My full thesis is available on um, our university's repository. Go ahead and um, read it. Like I said, if you're brave, um, but we will we'll be working on publishing an academic paper as well, um, which is we know the quickest way to kind of reach those academic and health professional communities. Um, we're also going to be presenting this at a couple of um, national conferences, both the DHP Division of Health Psychology Conference and the Craniofacial Society for Great Britain and Ireland Conference. Um, with a view of kind of informing the practice of craniofacial professionals, um, as well as trying to disseminate, um, such as right now, to in more kind of community channels, um, disseminating using kind of research summary flyers with the organisations that collaborated with me on this work, um, making sure that, you know, we're not just sharing the work within these academic spaces, but we're reaching out to communities. So we've still got a lot to do in terms of dissemination and sharing. um, And thanks for giving me a chance to do it on here today. 
Oh, well, it's been fantastic. I've really enjoyed this conversation um, and I, I'm sure that our listeners will have learned a lot. I certainly have a lot to think about and reflect on in terms of research practice going forward. And um, it's just been great to hear the process of your work. I know it's a it's a long uh, process going through doctoral research. So, yeah, I just think you should be really proud of the work that you've put together. And it's just been lovely to to hear your findings and kind of recommendations for going forward. So thank you, Bruna. Thanks so much, Maya. It's been really enjoyable. I like being on this side of the table, to yeah. be fair. Might do it more often. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So thanks again to Bruna for joining us. And don't forget to rate and review, subscribe and share to Appearance Matters, the podcast. And you can keep up to date with all that's going on at the Centre for Appearance Research on our socials, which are all linked in the bio. So until next time, bye. Bye.